happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 293 on May 10th, 2023. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am honored to be the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in kind of cloudy Missoula, Montana. And I'm just commenting to my wife the other day, Dr. Fryer, that it's it's that time where you start noticing how long the days are getting. You kind of can't believe that's finally here. Um, but it was like nine o'clock last night when the sun was going down. So we're marching towards the um, uh, the, the summer. summer yeah, I was going to say the summer solstice is coming. But will will you not be uh, on a European destination for that summer? Solstice? I will be. In fact, I will be in lovely Sweden for the Midsummer Festival to celebrate that auspicious holiday. So yeah, I. Um, we tickets are bought, and we are excited that we're going to fly to Berlin and then go to Sweden uh, right after um, we get to Berlin, uh, rent a car, head to northern Sweden where our family friends have a little cabin, and then we'll go back to Berlin and spend a week there. So it's uh, kind of two adventures in one, and it's the first kind of big trip we've taken since COVID, so we're, we're excited for the opportunity. That is good. Well, I am Wes Fryer. I am a middle school STEM teacher at Providence Day School in Charlotte, North Carolina, with just a few more weeks left of school. Uh, excited for some uh, family graduations coming up this month and uh, looking forward to a little summertime off as well. So there's rumors that the Friars may uh, finally get to the East Coast and some beach time after just getting mountain time so far. So one of the nice things about living here in Charlotte is we're about two and a half hours from the mountains and three and a half hours from the beach. So we're going to hopefully get to experience that. But I don't think we're really here to preview our vacations in tons of detail, Dr. Neifer. What are we going to be up to? Partly AI-generated young, yeah, older men. I would say younger men, but this <laughs> Yeah. We're not going to spread disinformation on this show. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, it's not the computer generated me. It's uh, real me. So, yeah. So we take a look at um, kind of ed tech stories uh, and kind of shoot them through the educational prism um, to see if we can find some sense uh, in, in the, the, the world's news at large. And uh, we've been focusing an awful lot on AI um, uh, lately. And I suspect actually that, that we will be focusing, um, even more, um, on AI and may even head in that direction on the podcast. It's hard to say. We're certainly having the conversation, but, uh, we will take a look at some AI news, um, some media literacy and conspiracy theory news, um, are, uh, ever popular, uh, topic, uh, um, uh, miscellaneous social media, Security and privacy, Microsoft and Google News, although I will tell you that a couple of the articles on, under those are AI as well. And then we'll end this week on our Geeks of the Week. So, Wes, I guess the big question is, do we start down the AI rabbit hole first or should we circle back to it after some other news? So I I can say proudly that we are caught up on all of our shows as far as publishing them. I kind of, yeah, I got, got, with the, got with the program. And I will say thanks to some AI tools because the the summarization tool that I've been using um, it's it's had some mixed results, but uh, lately it's just been amazing and that does save a lot of time. I say we jump straight into AI because for quite a while we've sort of hemmed and hawed and then we spend forty five minutes <laughs> talking about other stuff, which I actually enjoy. I know we're kind of talking about do we just focus on AI and I mean I do I like talking about more than just that, but I say we jump straight into the rabbit hole. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. 
let's meet the AI rabbit head on. Uh, well, let's start with maybe some kind of big picture stuff. And I, and I have other information I'd like to report this week about my own experimentations with AI. But um, this article from uh, TechSpot on Monday talks a little bit about how it, it seems, you know, really obvious that there must be, you know, incredible servers behind all these large language models. But ChatGPT is, as the headline claims, powered by a hidden army of contractors making $15 an hour. And um, the part of this is is the low wage because it is a, um, a $15 an hour with no benefits is not a, 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 a very quality wage uh, anymore in the United States. And then um, even though they have to buy this extraordinary number of computers for the computing power, um, uh, they have to do uh, 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 work with what they call remote contractors from the U.S., Latin America, and Eastern Europe to do the grueling work required to improve the output of tools like ChatGPT. Um, so, in other words, what uh, what seems like should be data fed by data, right? Instead, what's happening is that when you provide feedback and then when um, – there's apparently some kind of a logarithm that notes when when the output of ChatGPT was problem uh, problematic. There are actual engineers. Well, engineers is not even probably the right term. I don't know what this feels like uh, or or what the bottom minimum is. But um, one of the people that's doing the work, his name is Jatin Kumar. It's a Texas college graduate with a degree in computer science. Feels like a great opportunity to see AIs evolve and personally contribute to making them more useful. Um, but at the same time, this notion that it's powered by these thousand remote workers just was a little mind blowing to me. So Dr. Fryer, I'd hand that back to you. Is this a surprise to you? And does this give you any, um, uh, 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 nuanced thoughts about generative AI? I'm going back into our show notes for episodes 200 plus. We've got ChatGPT mentioned 45 times. There was an article a while back that we had, uh, basically talking about, uh, yeah, sweatshop labor. There it is. Okay. Yay for, uh, find. Episode 282 on January 25th, Time Magazine, OpenAI used Kenyan workers on less than $2 per hour to make ChatGPT less toxic. Wow. Um, so I'll drop that one in again. Um, no, not a surprise at all. And, Man, I think I, I didn't put it in there. I read a Naomi Klein just devastating critique of, of AI overall and ChatGPT specifically yesterday um, on some different fronts. We need to recognize that social media in terms of the important moderation we have, AI has not come here to save us at this point. Um, will AI have that capability when I say save us to, you know, take – you know, hor horrific and gruesome content um, and just other things that may not be quite as horrible, but also just violate, you know, community standards or, or the, uh, the guidelines. Perhaps it's going to do that, but today it doesn't. And, and we have to have human beings that look at these things and decide to try to take them off. And so uh, $15 an hour sounds better than $2 an hour. Um, I don't know if that article that you mentioned talks about where those folks are located, but that article we mentioned back in January, you know, with Kenyan workers is kind of a of a typical sort of it could be, um, you know, sweatshop labor in a um, in an apparel factory, a shoe factory, you know, in in um, in, a, in, in a country where, you know, the standard of living and, and the average wage is just far less. So yeah. I think that that is a characteristic of the 
you know, modern, modern day, uh, global economy that we have. And, um, I think it's, it's important to recognize the costs that are associated with that. Um, but, you know, I think it's also beneficial and good that we, that these companies are seeking ways to try to have things moderated. And we may talk a little bit later about open, about blue sky and, you know, fed, some of these other federated platforms that are not going to have central moderation as much as we wring our hands about this. I think it's been good for the most part. And Twitter, we may have an article about that, you know, cause it did not moderate some things this past week that were pretty, pretty ugly, but, um, it's unfortunate that folks aren't getting paid more and don't have more benefits. <clears throat> On the other hand, I think it's good that companies are trying to have guardrails and enforce some standards because if they didn't, their platforms are going to devolve into, you know, a, 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 basically a sewer. And sure, that's not good for, for you know pretty much everybody. Okay, well, um, let's see here. Do you have an article? And see that you put a couple in uh, on this topic as well. Yeah, let me go scoot back up here on our document. Um, and I don't know if we mentioned, but if you want to go to edtechsr.com slash links, uh, we have our podcast show notes and uh, carry forward a bunch of these. Um, let's see. I don't know. I'm seeing. I don't know if I put together. Yeah, I did this one. Well, okay. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned this one or not. This is a very, very good podcast. Um, this is from in machine from uh, in machines we trust from April twenty sixth. Yep. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I think maybe we might have mentioned this on the show. <laughs> Does it make me a narcissist that I like to listen to our shows over again? You know. <laughs> But the thing is, sometimes, and I will admit this, when I'm trying to think about something else, I don't, I'm not tracking as closely with what you're saying. And so yeah. I, I hear new things when I listen to the show again. But anyway, this is from In Machines We Trust, which is from uh, MIT Technology Review, a really, really fantastic podcast that I've been yes. subscribed to for a while. And this is called, I Was There When AI Reached a Crossroads. And so um, this is an interview with uh, cognitive scientist Gary Marcus, and um, I, I, I think I honestly think after listening, and I don't know that it's going to be just from this this one podcast. Um, I, I, I think that we're going are we're going to have the singularity, and and a lot of these scientists will say, well, let's not get hung up on that. We don't really have a consensus on what consciousness is or sentience and things like that. Um, I remember in November, uh, next week on Tuesday, I'm going to be uh, a guest on this podcast for our school uh, that's going to feature Christian Gibson, who's an OpenAI employee. And I heard him speak at our school in November. And when he was talking about people in, in OpenAI that he works with um, saying within 18 months, they thought human capacity would be exceeded by AI, I just was like, that to me sounds just like science fiction. And he was saying five years and having, having experienced more and more um, playing with the tools um, and, and listening to these, these uh, experts talk as well. You know, it it is always a struggle to know how much you're being sort of swept away by the hoopla. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, that stand to gain a lot financially, certainly by having a lot of, of buzz around all of this, but I've just, I have now experienced enough things uh, that I am a true believer in terms of the transformative nature of these tools. Um, and so um, that podcast was fantastic and just sort of further solidified my own belief in um, 
the trajectory of, of all this, which, which ultimately I think, and I don't know if the, if this is the one, but ultimately I, I do believe at this point, AI is going to break out of whatever guardrails we try to keep it in. Um, and it's going to be a real struggle for us to, um, be, I don't think we're going to be able to control it is in terms of its motivation and what it ultimately does. So I, I think I'm sadly somewhat, dis, not somewhat, I'm fairly dystopian in terms of the trajectory <laughs> of where this stuff is going now. Yeah. Not to, well, not to put a real damper on what is one of the predominant things that we, that we talk about now. So it's not to yeah. say I don't think we need to be exploring it and using it. I think we do. I don't think any of us are going to stop it. There's not going to be a six month pause. Um, and, and, and here's what I do believe we need is time to process it because these Wednesday evenings, when we sit down and visit and shout out to Peggy, who's here with us live. And I think we have another live viewer. Like this is so valuable to have time to process this stuff and try to figure out what it means because it is so, so big. And in the hectic busyness, we were laughing before we started the show. Hey, Google IO was, was today, you know, or it was yesterday. It was this week. And Anyway, there's so much going on, it's hard to keep up. But this topic right here, the AI topic, deserves our attention and, and also just requires, I think, a lot of processing for us to, to, to be figuring things out because it, it is all around us and it's not going to, you know, be one of these things that's just going to be isolated to, oh, well, the computer science people or the, you know, the, the ed tech people are going to talk about that. No, this is, this is touching every aspect of our lives. Awesome. Okay. Well, a couple other quick things that I um, kind of spotted this week in the AI world. Um, here is an interesting article from Government Technology on May 8th. Um, it's, can artificial intelligence help mitigate grade bias? And I posted this um, uh, on Twitter the other day and got someone that is, I think, in the industry of uh, AI model to kind of push back on me a little bit. But um, this, uh, it's it's in their higher ed section and they're talking about a, a, a platform called copy leaks, um, which has developed an AI assisted tool to eliminate human bias and discrepancies in the grading process, aiming to provide more consistency in grading while helping teachers save time. And so the idea here is that they're taking one of these large language models and they're plugging it into some kind of interface that, that does grading for you. And um, they were talking about, um, um, that right now that, that the AI or that an AB testing, the results were within a 2% margin when using the AI graders. In other words, it's mimicking, um, um, uh, human performance. And then they, uh, talk a little bit about that might be an opportunity to take away some biases that it consists in grading. Um, uh, you know, no matter what those biases happen to be. And, and it's a pretty fascinating uh, concept. What I talked about on Twitter, which is what had garnered a response from from uh, the AI ed tech guy, was that you know there seems to be some evidence that ChatGPT and 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 like platforms have some biases built in uh, to them in the way they discriminate for or against this, this or that, and. My guess is, is that, uh, they're working on that. And some of the solutions have been what would look a little ham handed to start off with by saying, you know, you can say a joke about, or you can write a joke about this, uh, person, kind of person, category of person, but you can't for that category of person across many different ways of, of, of human, um, uh, uh, uh human existence. And, um, 
you know, part of the answer to that and some of the things I've heard talked about are this notion that, you know, it's trained on the Internet, right? And the Internet has biases built into it. So we need to be extra careful about that and be thoughtful about that when we're employing AI. If we're going to use AI as a grading platform, then I think that has to be something um, um uh, it has to be something uh, that we're very, just very thoughtful about in how we, we implement those processes. So that's a long-winded way of saying that I thought the article was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm having conversations um, at school about – this is totally not worked out, but what should – should there be an appropriate use and at what level and in what context for students to be able to to use these tools. Yeah. And you know, I th- might have mentioned on the show uh, recently with you know, my students and and just one of them who had written a paragraph on their website and there were, you know, several different grammatical and spelling errors and things like that. Copied it, threw it into ChatGPT here, it you know, can you f- uh fix this for grammar and spelling etc. Not only did it do that, it also lined out immediately within seconds line by line, the five different corrections that it had made. And there are tools, I I think I've talked on the show before, in the mid or early 2000s when I was, uh, when I wrote some some grants for what was called the Text Tip, Texas Immersion Pilot Project uh, with laptops. Apple had partnered with this company. I don't know where they are now. I should research it. It's called Go My Access Writing. And it was this, you know, algorithmic driven software program that was able to give very specific feedback to students. And the research behind it was the, the more feedback that you receive on your writing and the, and the more, you know, the quicker that turnaround is, you know, we've all had that English teacher who, right. you know, took two months or whatever, or a month to, to get papers back. And you're like, what is this? I don't even remember writing this. I just, I cannot envision a world where we don't want that kind of feedback on our writing. And of course, it's going to beg the question of our student, you know, our students using that to, to generate their writing in the first place. But I, I, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of positives that can come out of this. And I think we need to keep our eyes open for that and be willing to embrace those. The thing I don't believe we want to do as teachers or parents or, or just members of society, <laughs> and I say this acknowledging my own thoughts that this is going to have a dystopian, you know, turn. I don't think we want to just say this is evil and it's, uh, it's the spawn of the devil and we don't want to have anything to do with it. I think doing that is kind of like saying, I'm going to stick with cursive handwriting and we're just going to learn Latin as our foreign language. Like those, those things are simply non-starters for relevance, um, you know, overall in, in communicating in the 21st century. So Another example of something good, I think, that's going to that's going to come from this. Yeah. Well, and where I'm starting to come increasingly uh, 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 connected to this is that I you know, there are assignments that I think it's perfectly reasonable to tell students that you shouldn't be using AI and it's not oh, a detriment yeah. to use AI. Right. And that number, you know, my guess is, is that you could probably get very reasonable people to disagree what that number is, right? And and neither of them necessarily be right. There is going to be a number of assignments where it just makes more sense to have someone develop that tool, right? Now, I can hear people saying that, well, you you know, why learn to do addition, subtraction, multiplication, division if you've got a calculator, right? And again, I think reasonable people can disagree about that. But the bottom line is, is that um, 
we're going to have to refigure out some ways we, we talk about assignments with students and there's human generated and there's uh, AI generated and many assignments or tasks, maybe somewhere down the middle, but then we have to articulate that. Right. Or the other way that I've been starting to think about this is like a math teacher doesn't like it when you, um, uh, you know, just show your answer on a, a problem when you're working it out on paper, you got to show your work. Right. And that's where I think we're going to have to increasingly work with students to, to talk about showing their work. Right. Like I've said, you can use AI for yeah. this parts of the assignment. You just have to show your work. Right. What was the prompt? What was the input? What was the output? And we're going to assess the process. I mean, many of these things we've done before, you know, those of us that have taught for any length of time, you know, you, you, you have uh, addressed these kinds of issues. So yeah, it's, I don't just want your answer. I don't just want the final result. I want to see the outline and we're going to want to encourage students to attribute, right? If you've used yeah. these tools, then attribute and, and give credit. Peggy in our chat is asking if this kind of use of chat GPT will work with essays written by students. Absolutely. And Jason, I haven't done this yet, but you have, I think. You can even put in a grading rubric, uh, tell yeah. ChatGPT to say, you are now my grading assistant, my, my teaching assistant. Uh, I want you to grade according to this rubric, yep. you know, paste it in. And I thought, I think you've done this, but I need to. I'm, I will try to do it before next show. I'm going to take my dissertation. Of course, it'll be longer than I can probably put in in one time, but right. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do that and say, I would like for you to evaluate the quality of this dissertation and offer suggestions for uh, either how the research could have been better or it could have been better written. And that will be absolutely fascinating um, because this thing is getting better. It is getting better and better. And Peggy's saying in the chat, it's mind blowing. It is Peggy. Yeah. It absolutely is. And I encourage you, even, even the free version, Jason and I are both paying for the, the paid version. And so we can use the, the 4.0, but um you know, even the 3.5 and, and something to realize is 5.0 is out now. I mean, what we're working with today and we're having our minds blown is like a year old. And so the velocity with which this is improving um, and the quality, it depends. It still hallucinates. And that even that word is, is a kind of a loaded word, but uh, yeah, you've uh, opened my eyes, Jason, with some, and, and I want to thank you because like just on the show, you're, you're like, cause I've been paying for this and you're saying you're using it every day. And I'm like, I'm not using it much at all. And I've, I started a wakelet. I'll put a link to it to uh, stories that I can share, you know, with ChatGPT and AI. And they're really, you know, some of them give me goosebumps and make me go, you know, want to dance for joy. They're so amazing. Uh, it just is something that we, we ought to play with. Well, and I'll give you an example of this, right? Um, I'm writing some surveys right now for my teaching staff and also my staff staff, and we're using kind of a 360 survey model um, to kind of rate the organization to start getting some baseline data about how people's perceptions of the org is. And it's important work, and you need that data, and it's important to highlight uh, maybe your blind spots. But um, I had a copy of a survey that we're going to use with our staff uh, that was utilized by another department on campus that shared a copy with me. Um, and then um, I wanted to make one for our faculty and the questions, because our faculty is 100% remote, were a little weird because they weren't in a building, weren't in a physical space together. So I went and looked for 360 surveys aimed at teachers. And rather than, you know, copying and pasting one or and then trying to change it to context, I gave ChatGPT seven of them and one at a time and said, now analyze this one, analyze this one, analyze this one, analyze this one. And after seven attempts, I said, so here's what I'm writing. It's a 360 survey 
survey for my teachers. I run an organization called X that is made up of virtual teachers. So can you write it based on those contexts? And it wrote me a 35 question, um, uh, 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 360 survey today. I shared it with my team. Done. And again, when we are asking it to do things that we have expertise in, yeah. um, that yeah. is really the best because we can check it. I heard a story today about an English teacher who was able to identify use of chat GPT because the paper that the student turned in included a character that wasn't actually in the book. <laughs> So the teacher knew that as like, well, where is this? And it was an hallucinated character. Um, and th that those issues are, are present in Bard and they're present in um, ChatGPT. But as we are doing things with content that we are familiar with, I think that's where you can you can see the power the most because you're like, this is really good. And I could have spent hours and hours doing this, but I didn't. And now I have this tool that I'm going to be able to go use and I just get, you know, I've just got back multiple hours of my life or I have a product that's a higher quality product that I would have been able to produce. Yeah. Okay. Totally. I got, I, I got to, I'm going to do this Chegg article. Is Chegg, okay, to your knowledge, a verb uh, among digital academy students or do teachers know about this? Cause I didn't know this was a verb. So I didn't know it was a verb either, but I heard that on the NPR story the other day. Okay. And that might have been where I heard this too. So this is a Reuters article um, from May 2nd. EdTech Chegg tumbles as ChatGPT uh, prompts um, revenue warning. So in the, the earnings call, the CEO of Chegg uh, talked about, you know, how people were using ChatGPT for free instead of their tool. <coughs> and this, you know, seemed to bode poorly with investors for, for the future earnings of Chegg. Uh, I guess Chegg is is not free, but a lot of college students, and it doesn't, like, maybe it was the NPR story, or maybe I heard about it on Hard Fork. I don't remember. You listen to a bunch of podcasts and things run together. Um, but the, the podcast I was listening to was saying that they didn't think, you know, college students were particularly, you know, in love with this and, you know, sad for this. I mean, you know, free, every, everyone seems to like free tools. So, um Oh gosh, and this is reminding me of something else I need to put into our show notes. So it's just interesting. I, this also shows sort of generational gaps and who, what are we doing online? What are the kids doing? What are the kids, those kids doing these days? Well, they're checking their answers. They're not just Googling their answers. They've been checking their answers, but now they're chat GPTing their answers. So yeah, Peggy's never, never heard of check. I really hadn't heard of it either, but <clears throat> this, um, and I think it might have been on hard fork, uh, when Casey Newton was talking about this, um, or Kevin Ruse. That, that perhaps this is part of what we're going to continue to see in terms of the displacement of jobs and um, and services, because as those things can be replaced today for free. Now, there's no guarantee ChatGPT is going to continue to be available free as it is now. Yep. Um, there's millions of users, but I think most of those are, are using free accounts. Um, I don't know how many folks are paying, but I will say that <laughs> I kind of jumped faster at this at, at a subscription level to say, yeah, this is worth paying for. And I don't know that I foresee in the short term a discontinuation of my subscription because I'm getting so much incredible value out of it. Like I said, I'm literally I've been doing things that I could not did not think I would ever do before. Right. And I am, you know, comparably, you know, getting hours of my life back that I could have been dedicating to this. I think it's going to be super interesting to see how we can use this for specific 
you know, student comments, especially as we have ways to ingest, to have a system. And that maybe these will be some things that people will write with APIs. But think about all of your students writing just just essays and, and having all of those ingested, quote unquote, um, input into uh, an AI system. And then you just ask it a very specific prompt, um, you know, for the things that you'd like to have feedback on and, and like to have. Um, and I just I mean, that that can be done today. It can be done today with the tool. Uh, it may not be as fast as it as it could be. But when we, you know, connect Canvas and some of these other learning management platforms, Moodle, um, it's we're we're just at the very, very beginning of it all. Well, let's see here. Anything else we should absolutely do? Okay, I don't have an article about this, but I I'm on the the edge of of like offering my own parent university <laughs> to talk about some things, and one of them is going to be AI assistance. Um, have you been looking at, or have you seen very many ads, Jason, as you've been using AI tools? Are you using much on iOS yet, or are you just doing ChatGPT? No, I just do ChatGPT. Yeah. Okay. So on my phone, I've been doing some uh, generative AI art and oh my gosh, my favorite app. It just, it's the, they're the longest ads that I've probably ever had to watch. And it's just (laughs) mind numbing. And some of them are games and whatever, but some of them are for AI assistance. And I'm aware of this. We might've talked about this on the show, um, but and, and maybe I'll find an article that I will drop in. But basically, um, well, there was one with an influencer that just, I, I think I actually, um, here, let me get this article. Um, people are able to create um, AI assistants, and these can not only be your friends, they can be your romantic companions. Okay, so here's the uh, article. Um, this was from Fortune. A 23-year-old Snapchat influencer used OpenAI's technology to create an AI version of herself that will be your girlfriend for a dollar a minute. And uh, this is actually Fortune. So uh, Dr. Fryer is using the archive.today trick to give you a non-paywall version of the article. Um, It already made in, what, one week? yeah, it's been in, in beta testing for a week and it generated $71,600, plus of revenue for this influencer. Um, and there is, um, I don't remember the name of it. Um, there, there's a, a pretty um, noted platform. Let's just Google. Sorry, this is this makes for a great radio, doesn't it? Let's watch Dr. Fryer Google live. Um, I'm going to Google AI companion app, and I'm sure that this is going to come up first. Yes, Replica, the very first hit out of 30 million. Um, I was watching an interview with the CEO of Replica, who was talking about how their user base pushed them to um, enable and allow romantic connections with this. And so you can turn that on if you're a subscriber and you can have your romantic partner, you know, with, with AI. And there's a whole lot of sides to this, but the point I want to make as a teacher and a parent is that our kids are likely seeing advertisements for these things now. And if, for instance, you don't have any restrictions at all, and I know this you know, varies by age and all of these things, but let's say you have, you know, younger, t- younger teenagers or preteens, if you don't have any restrictions on the app store at all, it could be very easy for, for kids to, to, you know, turn these 
in, install these things. And I think it's going to be challenging for adults to navigate this world. And I am not saying today that there's no place at all for AI assistance. I think there's going to be, you know, incredible utility in, in being able to have a smart assistant that's going to be able to do things. But I think the explicit uh, service of a romantic AI partner is going to certainly be a challenging prospect um, for middle school students like I teach um, and possibly for others as well. And it's probably something like if we've never heard of Chegg, how many pe adults have never heard of Replica? So, yeah. Anyway, that's a that's a whole other side of, of the AI that um, <laughs> my you know, my wife was talking about one of her one of her kids was talking about this is fifth graders and they were talking about their friend that, that has an AI girlfriend. And that was this week. Yeah, so. yeah. In fact, I, I've I've heard secondhand from some middle school teachers that, um, that especially some of the students that that maybe struggle a bit with external um, uh, sociability uh, have been taking uh, a lot to um, the uh, uh, AI friends and apps as well. Yeah. All right. Well, just go to Google News and put in the word replica, R-E-P-L-I-K-A, yeah. and you'll get a host of different articles that are raising all kinds of, uh, of issues about that. Um, let's see. Any other AI articles you want to talk about? We've. Well, I can actually, I can spin to a couple other that are maybe can get us off the AI top, uh, topic in the meantime. Um, I did listen to a great podcast, uh, the other day, um, on my lunchtime walk in beautiful Missoula. It's the made by Google podcast. So this is kind of their commercial podcast. And they had an episode called call me maybe uh, that I listened to to talk about the work they're doing on applying AI uh, to uh, what is, you know, an ancient technology, which is uh, uh, the phone call. And um, they were talking about some of the work that they're doing um, uh, uh, in regards to, trying to be upfront about um, um, other ways they can use AI that are not kind of these large language models because AI is not a new phenomenon. The large language models are a relatively new phenomenon that, that really brings home the power of this. But um, the bottom line is, is that AI can be used for lots of different and interesting things. And so they talked about the dialer in the Pixel 7 phones, or it does require a fairly powerful processor to pull this off. Um, but it can do things like uh, answer on your behalf of uh, phone calls to try to determine if they're real or not. And they're trying to apply AI technology to help you avoid scam calls um, because it can it can process a lot of information uh, and utilize an artificial intelligence model to make recommendations about whether you should take a phone call or not. So. I think it's important to understand that these large language models are mind blowing and they certainly could change a lot of things, but there's a lot of great AI out there that is doing really interesting things to help um, humans, you know, spend their time in a more quality way. Hey, shout out to my dad who's watching us live from Liberty, Missouri tonight. That's fire. Cool. <laughs> um, okay. On a technical note on our document, we have been in the habit of bolding articles as we talk about them. And then if you subscribe to our Substack, we are in a somewhat timely way, sometimes not very timely, sending out uh, the Substack that has the link to the show, but all the show notes, but also all the articles that we don't talk about in that week's show. ChatGPT currently cannot 
handle rich text. So when I copy this in and I try to say, hey, can you separate out the bold articles? It can't. So Jason, I'm open to your suggestions. I just put an asterisk in front, but I think if we just have some kind of character that we'll put um, in front of articles, <laughs> then again, this will just further speed the post-production process because I can copy and paste that entire list and say, please split this list into two groups, put the articles that have whatever character we want in the front yeah. and in the back. So anyway, man, I I'm... Have I told the JavaScript story about the random image generator? Have I told that on the show or to you? I don't know if I have because I think it happened last Friday. Um, I saw the Twitter traffic about it, but I don't know if you talked about it on the show. Okay, so I'll just do this quick. Um, I love to do five photo stories. I think it's a great way to learn digital storytelling. As I introduce tools to my kids, you know, um, I need to update my playing with media book sometime, but you know, the idea of, of playing with a tool first before you use it in production is really, really sound. So I've wanted to have a way that I could, to, could take a basically folder in this case, a Google drive shared folder of images and they're from unsplash and then just have kids click a button and get five pictures. Alan Levine has a wonderful tool that he coded himself in, you know, PHP, I think, or something uh, like that's beyond my geek quotient. I'm just not going to go there. But in an hour, iteratively doing this about six times with ChatGPT, and I'll just drop the link in here, I was able to create a JavaScript script, which runs off of a Google site. And you can go ahead and click right there, generate your, my, my images, and it gives you five of them. And you can say, try it again, and it gives them to you again. And so on their iPads, my kids are able to copy or save those images just to their photo roll. And we're using, the name has been deprecated, but, but Adobe Spark, Adobe Spark, uh, has become Adobe Express on the web, but the iPad app for Adobe Spark Video is still in existence and we're using it right now. And so that was my lesson on Friday and Monday. And, um, you know, that was phenomenal. Peggy's asking if Alan still blogs. Not as much, but he does some, uh, but he's, uh, he's very active on Mastodon. So if you join Mastodon, look for Cogdog. And you can find Alan Levine and, uh, he's living in like on a farm in Canada now. And so he's, he shares all kinds of stuff from the farm, but yeah, he's like the, like one of the ultimate digital storyteller educators of all times, so, you know, his 50 ways to tell a digital story is a legend. So anyway, that's one of my chat GPT stories that just, I mean, if it would have taken me 10 hours, the thing is I would not have taken the time to code the JavaScript perfectly like I would need to, to get that thing to work. And I didn't have to, because I, I, I was able to describe what I wanted. I had to get into the code and modify some stuff. And if you've, if you've ever worked with images that are in a shared Google Drive folder, you can't use the share link as an inline image when you're writing HTML. You have to do other things to it. But those other things can be done by ChatGPT. And so, you know, it took six iterations. But I, I haven't written a blog post about that, but I will soon. And so that was... That that was probably my, one of my biggest aha moments about using it was just, and I was literally ready to dance at school. I was so excited. I was whooping up and my kids were like, what is he doing? I'm like, I've wanted to have this for years and there's no way I would have done this without this tool. So it's where I really felt like sort of, you know, the bionic, the bionic human. Well, and then speaking of um, uh, tools rolling out, the Microsoft news to share from this week is that uh, Microsoft announced uh, it's kind of next, they're calling it AI innovation next wave. 
um, of other ways they're going to be uh, pushing out uh, their versions of this. Um, first, um, the Bing search powered by ChatGPT4 um, is is now an open preview and no longer is a wait list. That means you can just go there and use it and, and, and call it good. Um, you have to sign into a Microsoft account um, uh, to access it, but once you do, uh, you have access to it. Um, they're also starting to um, roll out free access to what they call the Bing Image Creator, which is part of that implementation of ChatGPT on Microsoft. Um, they're also um, uh, uh, prominently featuring now in Microsoft Edge, the browser that's required to, to access these particular properties. And they're starting to layer in it more into search, um, along with uh, starting to layer it in to Microsoft Office. And... One of the reasons why that, you know, and I even heard a lot of folks referring to, you know, like the age limitations of ChatGPT. Um, I don't think the Bing implementation of, of ChatGPT is as functional um, as ChatGPT is, in part because they do limit it a lot, in part because of some of the earlier shenanigans that they were experienced. Um, but that's something that, you know, this this technology is, you don't have to go out and seek it. It's going to be in the tools we're expecting to, uh, students to use every single day. So don't don't feel like we can erect a barrier that's in any way effective. Um, they're also now allowing universal access to the Microsoft Designer, which I kind of think of as kind of their Canva clone, uh, for lack of a better way of, of, of doing it. And that's now out of, of beta as well and is available to everyone. And I will say that at least in, in the, the 20 minutes of experimentation I've done with Microsoft Designer, I felt it was a little underwhelming. Uh, so, for example, you can use text to say, generate a Twitter uh, advertisement um, or Twitter post about, and I think I the one I used was Montana Digital Academy, so my day job. Um, and it created a graphic that, I mean, it looked like a Twitter graphic for sure. But it didn't use its its knowledge of MTDA or didn't use um, anything about that other than it was digital and it was in Montana. So there were some digital references to some of the graphics. There were some Montana references to some of the graphics, a Montana map, but didn't seem to demonstrate it understood what the organization is uh, when creating those graphics. So, again, Microsoft heading uh, hard charging into the AI future. And I don't, we don't have these, these articles in, in the show notes right now, but, uh, my understanding from, uh, social media shares from other folks about Google IO, um, and I, is that basically Google, um, is, is taking away the wait list for Bard. Uh, Bard is the chat GPT of Google and they are dogs are barking. They are, they're connecting Bard, um, I think they're working on connecting Bard to Google search, not working on it, but I think they are. And the article I want to share next, um, and I, we'll, we'll go to some other stuff too, because what we only have uh, 20 minutes left. This is the most critical article I've ever read about AI and ChatGPT, but, but it's also about capitalism. So if, if you are uh, at all, you know, upset by uh, any kind of critical economic or political theory, then just, you know, skip this article. But this is The Guardian by Naomi Klein. It's an op-ed on May 8th. And the title is AI Machines Aren't Hallucinating, But Their Makers Are. And it is a, a, a pretty devastating critique about the headlong rush that we're having um, to, you know, embrace these tools as quickly as we can, even though there's all these warnings talking about uh, former 
um, Google executive. Uh, I'm not, it's not Larry Page. Um, he wrote a book with uh, the National Security Advisor, not Brzezinski, who, who is Nixon's National Security Advisor? You know, as we get older, it's going to become just like a quiz game. I think I can think <laughs> of this person, but I can't think of their name. Um, who just turned 100 and was... Oh, you're uh, talking about Henry Kissinger. Yeah, he wrote a book with Kissinger um, about AI. Here, let's just... Let's Google this. Pretty soon we're going to have ChatGPT and it's going to know what I'm saying and it's going to, it's just going to bring up the Wikipedia article of, of the book. Yeah. Or, gonna, or, uh, uh, AI in post production could just cut all this time out and call it good. So. Absolutely. Okay. I just Googled AI book Kissinger Google. Um, here it is. Uh, the age of AI and our human future by Eric Schmidt, uh, and Henry Kissinger and also Daniel Huttenloker. Um, so, you know, this book, there's just so many different warnings that people are saying, Hey, we've got to have guardrails. Uh, this is going to become dangerous. We need government regulation. Um, you hear Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, saying this. So I just really commend, uh, Klein's, um, article. The thing that I take issue with is she, she basically sees the ingestion of creative works, both artwork and writing. Um, as sort of an a priori sin, meaning like it's just horrible to allow computers to do this. And the thing that's that I think about that is we do this all the time, right? We, we go to a physical art museum, you look at a virtual art museum, you read a book, you pick up a magazine, you get on social media. There's all these different ways that we intersect with ideas and with images and our, our limited, our very capable, but still limited brains are then able to take those ideas and those pictures and then possibly remix them. And we might use those for our own creativity. Well, she and, and many other artists are seeing this as a wholesale theft that no one's asked for permission from these artists. And, and so that's, that's one of the parts of the article. There's several different parts, but anyway, I just commended to you to check it out. It's definitely thought provoking and you know, there's so many different aspects to this, the energy consumption of these tools. I don't know if you've noticed, Jason, using ChatGPT, but sometimes it gets pretty slow and they have yep. limits on how often, but I think that's just a demand thing. And so it, it's kind of incredible to be at your keyboard and then imagining how many different simultaneous processors are, are you invoking with this little query that you have. And to, to the point that Shelly or, uh, Peggy was talking about how amazing just that story about feedback with student writing. When you see something coming back within seconds and sometimes it's delayed, but when it's delayed, it's just a few seconds. But like when you see these incredible responses happening so quickly, you know, it's like that is exceeding human capacity. I could give you lots of good ways, for instance, to think about addressing political polarization, but chat GPT can give, answers as good or better than I can give, and it can give them so much faster. And that's because it has a greater cognitive capacity and because it can read far more than I could ever read. So thought-provoking article, and I, I do recommend that. Super interesting. I have, um, a, I have a really wild one I'd like to do. Oh, yeah, and then let's I'll, do a really I'll, wild one. Okay, and then I want to give you a request if you can do the futures and prompt engineering, that Ethan Mollick. Oh, yes. Okay, because I think that was you. Yeah, it has a semicolon in it, so it was you. Okay, uh, I'm going to skip down to, I put this under security and privacy. Uh, no, no, I put it under media literacy. This is wild. Um, 
The article is called Secret Room Inside Popular Game, Counter-Strike, Contains Independent Journalism About Ukraine War. <laughs> Shout out to my friend Brian Turnbaugh from uh, the uh, Summer Institute in Media Literacy, and he frequently uh, uh, DMs me some articles. When the war started in Russia, in the Ukraine, uh, Putin banned all kinds of platforms. So folks could not get to Twitter. They couldn't get to officially, you know, without, um, you know, bypassing um, Telegram. I mean, so, so many different things. But what some developers figured out is that Counter-Strike, which is basically like a first-person shooter um, take on the terrorist game. I have not played it, but you can visit this article and there's a lot of, you know, footage of it. You can see exactly, you know, uh, what you're doing. You're, you're killing a bunch of terrorists and trying to, trying to stop them. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, a lot of Western media sites have been blocked. And so what some coders did was they figured out that because Counter-Strike was still legal in Russia and millions of Russians played it, they could create a secret room inside the game where current news about the Ukraine war could be shared. And that's been going on for the last year and a half. I think that's phenomenal. And wow, what a, you wonder if intelligence services were involved in that or how that was pulled off because the information war, the like war, um, that's going on is is very significant and who would have ever thought that you know millions of russians uh, and who knows how many i mean millions are playing it it doesn't say that millions are going into the secret room but hopefully the fact that this has now been disclosed isn't going to cause counter-strike to be blocked in russia it very well could be yeah hopefully we're not well, going to contribute to that but I'm i mean sure it certainly reminds me broadly of the cold war right there was a, a lot of information that snuck in and out of the soviet union at the time through means uh, other means than than would typically be um uh utilized to get uh to get information in and out because the country blocked it so it was well really think bad. about voice of america right yeah. this is like voice of america of 2023 instead yeah. of a radio station that has a broadcast antenna just across the border from the soviet union or, or whatever country you know this this is the new voice of america but it's you know journalistic news all right how about this uh future not being prompt engineering and for people who don't know what is that what the heck is prompt engineering uh, well, prompt engineering is the notion that, um, well, it's the activity you utilize to nudge GPT, chat GPT, or Google Bard, or any of the other uh, large language models that you have direct access to. Engineering the prompt means that you are writing what needs to happen in order to get the job done, right? And what I've learned over time, and in fact, I, I have several of these that I've worked on, is that the directions you give ChatGPT matter an awful lot and sometimes can make the difference between a, a, a flatly incorrect response and something that much more um, uh, uh, closer to what you're looking more nuanced is in, in the way of its interpretation. And I've been really keeping um, a, a close eye on a professor from the Wharton School. Uh, his name is Ethan Mullick. And he has been um, tweeting an awful lot of very interesting things about ChatGPT. And I probably retweet two or three of his articles um, a week because he's just writing or, or he's both tweeting and writing a lot of interesting stuff. So he's talking about uh, his tweet in particular says uh, when the folks at OpenAI are telling you that you that prompt engineering is not going to be the job of the future because AI will be able to figure it out. Uh, or what you need on its own, believe it. Every trend is pointing towards this way, and AI systems are 20% easier than they were, I'm sorry, 20 times easier than they were um, just four months ago. And it was a, um, 
uh, a guy named Logan from OpenAI that said that information. And that's where I just think it's super interesting because, you know, uh, Dr. Fryer and I are early commentators about this for sure. And I'm sure we said some silly things for sure. Right. And in talking about this, it's happening so fast. Uh, it's, it's going to have such a huge pack, uh, impact on the way we, we, we both learn and, and teach that, you know, uh, we're going to make mistakes. But I also thought, and, and I remember thinking this at the time, all these people running around that we need to immediately teach prompt engineering and that's got to be the education. If you're not teaching on prompt engineering or what are you doing? And then you go on Twitter and get told by someone else, if you're still just at awe about chat GPT, you missed the boat a month ago. It's now about auto GPT and yada, 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 yada. And so I, what I like about the uh, Mr. Mullock is that I do feel like he, it takes a very sobering view of this but also, this is happening very quickly. We say that a lot. By we, I mean Dr. Fryer. I say that a lot. But it's really important to remember that these conversations need to be had now, but then they'll change quickly. So we need to have the conversation again. And I think all these these uh, discussions, conversations, ways to connect with one another are absolutely 100% um, in, important to have at a, a, a regular pattern now. And critical thinking, right? Yes. Being able to figure stuff out. Uh, I am, and I don't know if I shared this on the show, I won't get to teach robotics next year, so I'm kind of sad about that. But I am going to teach web design in the spring, and I will, uh, I'll be teaching injured engineering again, <clears throat> but I'm going to pick up our intermediate coding class, and I'll be uh, planning that course over the, the summer. And cool. one of the things that I've learned talking to coders and our son, who now works for NASA and is a robotic engineer working on the International Space Station, like you've got to be able to learn new systems and and this is like operating systems i remember back in the day in like 99 and 98 um when you know we had a windows lab and we had a mac lab and we would have some parents that would be like my kids not in the windows lab why are they in the mac lab and you're saying it's because we're going to need to learn multiple systems you're your child is not going to be using Windows 95 when they're in high school. Um, and that's not only true of operating systems, but it's also true of programming languages as well. So being able to be agile, being able to be a critical thinker, a computational thinker, and being able to, to figure stuff out. Um, one more story. Um, are, are, I would guess that you like to use uh, Excel and Google Sheet formulas, Jason. Do you do you do some? Do you, <laughs> I'm do not you do very some, good at it, but yes, I do enjoy a a a good formula every now and then. Have you turned ChatGPT onto that? I have Be because yeah. I did that for the first time, and this was a really simple thing. I we did a little survey because <clears throat> we had a speed build for our gaming club for Minecraft today, and kids build tropical islands. And anyway, I just needed to massage that data a little bit, and you know, get you know, get separate off the first name from the email address, capitalize things, you know, eliminate duplicates, uh, combine some fields. And while I have in the past sort of retaught myself some of those formulas, again, using ChatGPT, you know, enabled me to, you know, get the exact formulas like this, change, you know, columns and, and row numbers and things like that. And I was on my way. So, um, yeah, I, I think that critical thinking is is the key. And um, 
you know, and media literacy. Do you want to, you've got a couple other Ethan Mollock references up there. Do you want to do those about next level prompting or, or what would you like to do next? Cause um, we're approaching five minutes to the top. Yeah. Of the let me just share that one. It's, it, I, I couldn't even explain it if I tried, so I won't try to, to try to sound smart about this particular one, but, um, uh, uh Mr. Mollock, maybe Dr. Mollock, I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, uh, it's just a very fascinating article he refers to at the ARVIX or XIV site, excuse me, which I think is, is, uh, OpenAI's research, um, uh, arm where they publish papers and involve them. But, uh, this, uh, new paper that they released, um, talks about the effectiveness of, um, w- what they call plan to solve prompting, which is when you engage in chat GPT in a conversation, and try to narrow down what you're looking for and then kind of start bouncing ideas off of each other, that brainstorming process leads to much, much, much better results for what you're looking for. And that's one of the reasons why that I think two things are are very true. The first one is that uh, even if you're against uh, uh, using ChatGPT, it would be criminal to not exploring with students how you use this to engage with knowledge, right? Like that's a, um, that's absolutely for sure, right? That, that it's going to be so important at some point to, to, to critical thinking and processing of information that to ignore it because of a perception of, you know, needing to do this human only all the time, I think would be quite short-sighted. But I would also argue that this just shows you that, it, you know, I, uh, am I worried about students that are going to ask chat GPT to write a, a paper for them? Sure, I do. I worry about that. I'm not sure what the answer to that is yet. I haven't thought about any clever solutions about how to make that more palatable. But what I can say is that, um, uh, imagine for a moment when you have one of these large language models available to you and you really want to engage in some intellectual banter to try to clarify your own thoughts, to try to grow a scholar and a learner. And all the evidence in the world suggests that these large language models, and again, you know, both Dr. Fryer and I, I, we talk about this and we also know there's risks in all this, but, you know, imagine for a moment the ability to, um, you know, to have it, uh, you know, keep pushing and nudging you towards, you know, becoming a, a stronger thinker, a more critical thinker, a more independent thinker. And I think that's extraordinary in its, its value. And one of my connections to this is going to be with, uh, competitive, cross-examination policy debate. So I only did a semester of that in high school, but I did four years of, uh, of values debate, but it was still cross-examination debate and it was evidence-based debate. You know, two of our children uh, participated in intercollegiate debate, one for, uh, I think, two years, another for three. And it was fascinating to me to see how technology um, had had come into that with judging, but also with evidence and with with students. And, you know, you might have some purists that would say, what the heck are you doing using your computer? But, you know, you'd, you'd have the start of the round and, and, you know, a flash drive would be passed along and, you know, the entire case was was given. And so... It was there was so much more access that students had to each other's arguments and to each other's evidence. But the thing is, you weren't going to win or lose just based on whether you had access to that. You had to be able to use it. You had to be able to understand it. You had to be able to, you know, respond in cross-examination and and generate arguments. It was very performative. And I think that some of the assessments that we're going to need to be looking to increasingly in school are going to need to be performative because all of us have had tremendous numbers of resources and information sources at our fingertips. 
but simply regurgitating those and, you know, throwing those into an essay, like that's, that's going to become less and less impressive because we can have a lot of tools do that for us. But are you going to be able to utilize that in a, in a real context, in a, in a, what I would call a more performative based situation? And especially are you going to be able to take ideas and, and sort of cross apply them, you know, use something in context in a novel, in a novel context, you know, not just, Oh, I worked this problem, you know, with, with, with these, you know, sets of, of unknowns. Now I've got to work it in, in another context. That's, that's where you can really assess learning and whether or not transfer has occurred. Um, let's jump down to security. I'd love for you, if you could cover the, the has multi-factor authentication failed us. I'm going to do this Vladimir Putin article and we may be out of time. Um, so this is from today, Ars Technica, how this is amazing, how one of Vladimir Putin's most prized hacking units got pwned by the FBI. Um, man. So we've talked on the show and we do frequently about how important cybersecurity is and, you know, needing to uh, turn students, you know, to towards cybersecurity because it's not just from a law enforcement standpoint or a military standpoint from a business standpoint. It's just, it's just huge after decades. And yes, that means more than 20 years of watching Kremlin based hackers, the FBI identified their weaknesses and pounced. And so this system, which I guess eventually uh, was, was renamed snake um, has been infected. Turla, I guess was what it was originally called. It's uh, described as a digital Swiss army knife of sorts that runs on windows, Mac OS, Linux written in C. Basically it can be deployed um, and it's been in over 50 countries infected, you know, NATO member countries, journalists, uh, critical infrastructure, communications, education, and its capabilities as a backdoor, you know, lets the, the controllers install or uninstall malware, send commands, take out data, send it to the Kremlin. It's just unbelievable. And so this expose uh, basically is, this is a, a Dan Gooden article, is a real victory for United States security forces who have been watching this for decades and then deployed a solution. It's a little bit like Stuxnet. And if you're not familiar with Stuxnet, most analysts believe that was co-developed by Israel as well as the CIA. And that caused the centrifuges in Iran's um, most advanced uranium refinement facility to spin out of control and to blow up. And it set the Iranian nuclear uh, program back years, but it also released itself into the wild. And so it's on the dark web for anyone to be able to use. But that was a real important milestone in the history of cybersecurity. I think this particular attack could be comparable to that. It doesn't involve, you know, the refinement of, of uranium for nuclear energy or nuclear weapons, but it is a pretty remarkable story. And so, yay, American FBI. Um, based upon what Dan Gooden has presented here, this is a pretty big victory. That's really cool. Um, and then I'll go ahead and do that that uh, um, multi-factor authentication article from PC Magazine. Uh, this is from uh, several weeks back, but I was uh, – several weeks, three weeks back. Um, I speak in the interest about this because uh, MFA or 2FA is is preached often on this podcast as a good means of security. And uh, the article talks about how they're starting to become some very highly nuanced attacks that basically are attacking – 
mechanisms of multi-factor authentication. And the idea being that once you uh, uh, are multi-factor authenticated, you essentially have access to the account and can oftentimes use that to get into other multi-factor authentication uh, schemes. And uh, it just looks at 2022 and how um, uh, uh, more organizations were using MFA in 2022, 22 or 28% um, over the year 2017. Um, but attacks are on the rise, right? So there's more security than ever where attacks are on the rise, but it's not because of, of the lack of security and multi-factor authentication. It's because that's where they're starting to direct attacks now is things uh, 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 evolved in multi-factor authentication. But what I love about this article, it talks about that, but it says in essence that it's... Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it risk continues, but it's still the best way we have available right now to lock accounts down. And 82% of attacks involve the human element. element. Um, MFA is still your first line of defense, says the security expert cited in this article, and that you also need to work on other things like zero trust principles, identity, identity governance, and um, uh, making sure that your MFA enrollment is secure. So uh, it's an interesting article. It's a dangerous place out there. There's no one tool that can prevent you from all attacks or all um, security issues, but turning on the ones that are available to you can dramatically decrease your risk of loss. So I think we're going to need to, uh, and we will, I'm sure, next week pick up uh, a bunch of the Google News because with I.O. and announcements, we'll we'll get caught up on that. But I'll drop this additional one in that I saw because I, I appreciate you covering that because I need to read that one. Ars Technica, um, I don't know if this was on the 10th or not. Uh, no, it was on the 3rd of May. Passwordless Google accounts are here. You can switch to passkey only. So, yes, what... Dr. Neifer just said about if you can turn on multi-factor where you receive a text message, you use a, an app to get a code so that you have a second factor of, of authentication and logging in besides your password. Yes, keep doing that because that is important. But the bad guys are always trying to, to stay one step ahead. And so one of the responses that Google has, and I know Microsoft has been working on this too, is, is trying to have what they call passkey only. And I think that's using your phone as your passkey. Um, so it's a switching is probably a terrible idea right now, but you've got to start somewhere. And anyway, I haven't, I haven't done that yet. Um, in fact, you know, uh, if you, if you happen to be a political candidate and ladies and gentlemen, I'm personally hoping for Dr. Neifert to run for governor, uh, of Montana here in, in a few years, but, um, what, whatever, uh, if you are in a situation where you think you are a target or, or you could be a very high level target you can lock things down to a much greater yep. degree and, and have, you know, a physical key required every time that, that you log in. So I think it's good, Jason, we're continuing to talk about security and other issues. I know AI is tending to dominate things, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it is important to talk about AI and process this, but especially some of these security articles can really, they, they, they can affect us in some huge, huge ways. And if we can help anyone avoid an identity theft, the, the angst and pain of, you know, having your ID, your ID stolen or somebody being able to, to hack your stuff, delete your things, um, you know, it's, that would be good. So Peggy, Peggy's ready to vote for you. I don't think she can as a citizen of Arizona, but you know, she's going to, she's going to support your candidacy. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Peggy. <laughs> Well, All Dr. Right. Fryer, we're at what? Almost hour 10 now. Um, 
where can be? Oh no, it's our time for our geeks of the week. Um, and I think I've actually shared this one before. So why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay, uh, I mentioned on the show last week a um, application that our computer science chair, as well as uh, tech director at Cassidy School, where I left in Oklahoma City, have developed. It's now available. It's called the Simple Signage App. And so especially if you're at a school that runs Jamf and has Apple TVs, you can utilize uh, Google Slideshows, and Jamf can push this out to your devices, and you can manage it, and <clears throat> you can have your uh, department or division assistants or whoever is, is handling announcements be able to push all that out and have that on class in classrooms and it's just a really a, a fantastic uh, solution and, and way to go and then um, I also put I think maybe I shared this already um, in the show notes but uh, I, I've been starting different wakelets also again because of your encouragement Jason wakelet is just a great tool to collect websites it's just a set of links uh, connected to things that I could tell stories about. For instance, I created a, a video using Canva at your suggestion and just did it entirely AI generated, um, both with the audio as well as with the, the images and everything like that. So my spreadsheets that I did, the story about the image generator, that, that kind of stuff is there. And summarize.tech, which is the website we're using to summarize our show each week now. How about your Geek Week? Jason. Well, um, uh, I taught uh, education technology or educational technology theory uh, methods over at the University of Montana uh, this spring. It's a great opportunity to get back into the classroom. I very much enjoy teaching that class online. Um, but one of the resources I utilized was edtechbooks.org, which is a series of textbooks, open source textbooks, in a very nice, uh, presentable way that looks good both on a tablet and a cell phone and a desktop computer. But if you are teaching in this realm or doing professional development or looking for professional reading, I found this to be a really great resource that has very, very, very relevant and, 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 and new texts that you can share with those looking to dig in the theories behind edtech. Okay, Dr. Fryer, where can people find you on the internet? I am at westfryer.com slash after, and you can find all my links there. And I'm now sharing on a number of social platforms, um, but still on Twitter as well at W Fryer. How about you? Um, I am best to find me uh, still on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. But this here is the EdTech Situation. We're a once a week podcast on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Easter time. And if you're listening to us in Western Europe, we're sorry about the time of day that we're on. Uh, if you can't join us live, although we wish you would, we're available via YouTube and Facebook uh, live video. You can always download our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated in your favorite app. Download a tiny MP3 at our website, edtechsr.com, where you can also find our show notes. Stay safe. Stay savvy. We hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.